1: Hello, welcome to the New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rance Wagenberg, a historian of Japan at Penn State. Today, I will be talking to Robert Jacobs about his book, Nuclear Bodies, the Global Ibaksha, which was published by Yale University Press in 2022. Jacobs' books, Nuclear Bodies, the Global Ibaksha, re the history of the Cold War as a slow nuclear war, fought on remote battlegrounds against populations powerless to prevent the contamination of their lands and bodies. Jacob's book put those nuclear bodies and the legacy of our 80 years' history of nuclear weapon and power use at the center of his inquiry. The contaminated bodies of the hibaksha and the contaminated grounds on which they live, or in many cases lived, as many lost their homes, Jacob's argues, are largely invisible because of the colonial and post-colonial power relations that made these communities a target to begin with. Nuclear weapon tests and power stations usually were set at remote places, and the harm was done to people with no political power, it is not just contemporary communities that were harmed, but also future generations. Protonium Jacob's right will remain dangerous for over two hundred thousand years, uranium particles for more than one million years. Eight years of tests in nuclear power settled our future descendants with relative with radioactive waste radioactive waste, much of which is still not safely stored. A global legacy currently sitting in spent fuel, pools and dry storage casks waiting. The invisibility of the problem and people affected by it, Jacobs argues, is manufactured in science and politics. Furthermore, the way we study the problem historically for the obscurity scope, different sites have been studied for different national historical silos. Jacobs, however, takes a global approach and looks at sites from Nevada to Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Kazakhstan to Xinjiang, and the very specific sites that were sites of nuclear tests and accidents since 1945. Hello, Bo. Welcome to New the New York uh, I'll call you, back if you
0: don't mind. Call me, man. Oh, please, please do. So
1: uh, I'll start with the same question we started all of our guests. What brought you to this story, and can you tell us more about your own background as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, in, in a lot of ways, my earlier work that I did was focused very much on nuclear representation. So the way that we learn to think about what a nuclear weapon is, uh, what happens when a nuclear war happens, who will survive, what radiation is. And so it was very much about the way that we grappled with narratives, with nuclear narratives, cultural narratives. Um, And in some ways, this book is an outgrowth of having moved to Hiroshima. I've been living in Hiroshima for 17 years. And here in Hiroshima, and as I became further engaged with, uh, with nuclear scholarship outside of cultural representation, uh, it just really struck me the degree to which people talk about n- nuclear weapons as things that were not used. Um, because certainly as an American, I was well aware that there were lots of nuclear detonations inside the United States throughout my childhood, and that uh, there were you know, thousands of nuclear weapon tests worldwide. And so uh, as a result, I became interested in all of the people who were affected by, by radiation since 1945, which is millions and millions of people globally. And so along with my colleague, Dr. Mick Broderick uh, from Murdoch University in Australia, in 2010, we began a research project called the Global Hibaksha Project, and we began to conduct Field research in radiation affected communities and with cohorts of radiation affected people, collecting oral histories and also being guided through local history in those locations by people who lived there and people who had experienced these exposures. And once we began to understand this history as a global history, it it began to take on a much more profound. Uh, Character in we began to understand it as a much more profound history and a much more uh, uh, the, a history that had not quite been represented. And so we conducted uh, we conducted field research in well over twenty countries with all kinds of different people collecting oral histories, and this led to the framing and the understanding of the nuclear history of the Cold War that I present in this book. Um, and so I would also mentioned that uh you know my own path here I, I i do want to point out that my own path here uh is really not a normal academic path uh, i uh, I'm sort of a, a, this is a shout out to non-traditional scholars but I began to work on my undergraduate degree when I was thirty uh, and had four kids and so I completed my phd when I was 44 and only began to work as a as an academic when i was forty five. Um, So my path here was not a traditional path, Uh, but since I was a young child, growing up in the 1960s in Cold War America, I was absolutely terrified of nuclear weapons, and so I've really been reading about and studying nuclear weapons all of my life, and now uh, doing it professionally.
1: That's really great. Um, Yeah, I started also pretty late, but I didn't have four kids, (laughs) Uh, which... I guess making it a little bit more difficult, right? So I want to start with a quote. It's something that uh, I really like by historian, a, a friend of both of us, someone who's historian, Kate Brown. And I found it very compelling. And I wonder if you can expand on this, because I think it really touches the heart of this global departure project that you and Mick started in the book itself. So I'll just read you. It's on, page, you, you, you page, it's on page 18 in your book. It says, there ought to be a new frontier of scholarly inquiry, that one that learns to read by these, these historical texts. So is to recreate historically voiced, voided bodies living on contaminated landscapes in a way that does not dismiss bodies in pain. I f- maybe you can expand a little bit of it. Maybe just as a way as an intro to, to the book. Sure. Uh,
0: it 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 and that's why it's in the introduction to the book. Um, it's it's really a, a a prescient and profound statement by Kate. Uh, and so one of the ways that I would look at it is that when we traditionally talk about the cold war uh we talk about policies we talk about political hotspots. we talk about risks decisions we talk about almost everything except for human beings uh not that not that you know presidents or uh premiers are not human beings but um we tend to look at the cold war as a series of decisions and a series of uh of disasters avoided or conflicts uh, put in you know uh, acted out through proxies and proxy wars and things like this. And so we tend to look at it as uh, as essentially a class a, a clash of uh, policies and ideologies and so the Cold War was actually experienced viscerally, bodily in a way that produced medical harm and early mortality by millions of people. and so to ignore that, aspect of what happened during the Cold War is really to not understand the Cold War as a historically experienced event. The Cold War is something that did affect people, uh, that didn't just affect people because they worried about what decisions their leaders might make or they worried about what actions their enemies might take. Uh, This is a privileged view you know, in the nuclear weapon states that we're potentially going to fight a nuclear war, that this is what the Cold War was. Uh, it was an imaginary war that we just avoided. Um, and what Kate's talking about there is that, you know, what we have to look at when we look at history is we have to look at, at history as things that that regular people are living through and that happen in regular people's worlds. And in this particular case, very much in regular people's bodies, because we're talking about radiation you know harming bodies we're talking about radiation in ecosystems where people derive the food they feed their children from and so unless we understand the ways that people were impacted and the ways that ecosystems were impacted we're really not looking at this history really what we're looking at is an intellectual analysis of uh of you know imagined or or actualized policy decisions
1: yeah and this is really I this is really is touching on so many points that, that I want to get later on is like how radiation is actually part of the ecosystem, part of bodies, how it circulates through, uh, through them. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it. But um, So we we touched on nuclear bodies part now in, in, in the title, but there is also, and on the global part also uh, before, but I want to go to the word hibakusha here, which of course in Japanese, which means an exposed person. Uh, and it was used initially in Hiroshima Nagasaki. And, and it might be a bit of a touchy subject for people in Hiroshima Nagasaki for other people to use this word, uh, might even say usurp this word. Some, um, I wonder if the word that people use or the word you use, uh, what's it, and what can you tell us about the relationship between Hiroshima Nagasaki and other uh, contaminated sites, other um, exposed sites?
0: Yeah, that's uh, Ed, that you, you note correctly. It's a complicated thing uh, to use this word. Um, you know, this word is a word that is very much rooted in the history of the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the word Hibaksha, you know, almost universally has always referred to the people who survived those two nuclear attacks. Um, and so, using that word is something that people in these test site communities do not do. Uh, many of them, many test site communities, for example, or many radiation-affected communities are not necessarily people who have, uh, who have a whole lot of um, familiarity with this history the way that those of us that study Hiroshima and Nagasaki do. The word Hiroshima is resonant in all of these communities, and, and many of these communities consider themselves a, another Hiroshima uh, but the word hibaksha is probably a word that they that many of many people haven't heard in these communities, and in some ways, it's been it's used before Mick and I began to use it. Um, <clears throat> there, there's some scholarship around global uh, global impacts of radiation on test site and uh, accident and production communities that have used the term global hibakshah in the past. Uh, But we really embraced it as a way to speak about these communities. And in some ways, it was a way to uh, intentionally connect their history with the history of what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, And that was in a sense to imply that there was a continuation of the victimization of people and the harming of human bodies by radiation after 1945. And... Here in Hiroshima, uh, and this is where I live, and in Nagasaki, but really my experience is here in Hiroshima. It's been a controversial choice to use that word, and there were definitely people who felt who clearly expressed that they felt a little uncomfortable with the use of that word when I would give talks publicly here in Hiroshima. Um, and you, you know, you can see the illustration of this, for example, by after Fukushima, there was some referencing of the people who experienced the who lived in the areas where the fallout came down in fukushima as new hibaksha, and there was a lot of controversy about whether that term should be used for them both here in hiroshima and also among the that community of people for whom the word was was a marking of a stigma um, and so i would say that what's been interesting to me is that now Uh, Basically, 12 years after I began to use this word in public talks here in Hiroshima, I'm finding it really, uh, really embraced in a way that was not expected for me in the beginning. And part of it, my understanding of it, is that people... Here, here as, as you know very well, Ron, here in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki, there's a lot of anxiety about memory culture. And there's a lot of anxiety about keeping the memory of Hiroshima and Nagasaki alive once the generation that experienced the nuclear attacks has passed. And there's a growing awareness that the existence of many other radiation-affected people in the world... Is actually a tool that can help facilitate the maintenance of memory culture and uh, and the relevance to the world of what happened here in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it's been an interesting shift over the twelve years I've been using the term global hibaksha here in Hiroshima. But it, it is uh, it is definitely a controversial choice.
1: Yeah, indeed, and if, in, in Japanese, of course, as you as you know, you can say hibaku. Uh, you can use two different characters: one for exposed to the bomb, which is the word conventionally used for hibaksha, and one exposed to radiation, uh, which is a term that some people use Fukushima and other places. Uh, or you can use it in katakana, which means it. Um, which means in, an international. So there is a way to approach it, just not just not in English. I would say also a lot of uh, Ibaksha. If I may, just jump in a little bit with my own experience. I have been working on Hiroshima a lot. Uh, it is a symbol. It's a symbol, and as such, is uh, it has symbolic capital, and it make it what makes uh, those people in a way very unique. Uh, both, uh, and we can. A question I want to return to when we talk about the, the ABCC, and, and there's something that people latch onto: uniqueness. Um, and and I can see why why you know why there will be uh, complications when other people start using it. Um, so it's actually a good segue to talk about the, the lifespan study, which is. Uh, uh, so, in chapter one, you, you talk about the lifespan study in ABCC Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission, uh, which is in, in which is in, uh, in Hiroshima, and Nagasaki, and I want to expand a little bit about this, and to, maybe there's a little bit, bit different types of radiation, and how this, the this politic this choice of the science done in Hiroshima, and Nagasaki, uh, the choices made in Hiroshima, and Nagasaki uh, affect the rest of the world. Right, the uh, LSS becoming the gold standard in radiation harm research, and what are the problems you have uh, with it. So, and maybe you can. Explore. I'm using a lot of words that maybe our listeners don't know. Maybe sure explain a little bit. Uh, I'll,
0: I'll, I'll go into this, and you know, this is how I this is how I start the book because understanding the impacts of radiation on the human body and understanding the way that we have built medical models of how radiation harms the body is a key part of. The story of the global hibaksha. And so the first thing I'll say is just that um, when a nuclear weapon explodes or when there's an accident at a nuclear power plant, people can be exposed to radiation in in multiple ways. Uh, And you can divide it really into two primary ways. And one is that they experience it as waves or as particles. So uh, waves are experienced externally to the body, waves pass through the body, and particles are things you can get inside your body. So uh, gamma radiation, which is uh, the radiation and neutron radiation, which is radiation in the form of waves, you can think of it like X-rays. Um, when you go and you get an x-ray taken, the x-ray is turned on, then the x-ray is turned off during the period that the x-ray is on the radioactive waves pass through your body and you get an image of a bone or you get an image of a tooth. But five minutes later, there's no radiation in the room. There's no radiation left. There's no radiation in your body. So it passes through your body and whatever damage it might do, it does to your body during those moments. Um, When a nuclear weapon detonates, there's a giant burst of gamma radiation, primarily gamma radiation. And this is like the other forms of energy that come out of the bomb, like blast energy, like heat energy, uh, the radioactive waves. So there's a burst, and this energy... Is uh, comes out from the epicenter where the weapon detonates and extends out, in the case of here in Hiroshima or Nagasaki, a weapon that size, about three kilometers. That's about how far out the blast energy, the heat energy, and the radioactive waves impact things. If you're inside that zone, then the gamma waves will pass through your body entirely. They pass through buildings. They pass through almost everything. Uh, They don't pass through lead, or they're they're shielded by lead, which is why you wear a lead apron when you're getting an x-ray. But there's a whole lot of particles that are made radioactive. They're ionized or fission products produced by the reaction or also unfissioned parts of the weapons, for example, plutonium or uranium-235. So these are these are this is radiation in particle form. These are particular molecules, and so these end up going up inside the mushroom cloud, and then as the mushroom cloud drifts, these particles fall back down to Earth, and they affect us in an entirely different way. Um, they are they are small particles that remain radioactive. So depending on the chemistry of the uh, and the physics of the of the particular element, it can remain radioactive for different different periods of time. So the danger that people face when they encounter this kind of radiation is primarily from getting particles inside of their body. If there's a ton of it in a place, there can be a lot of, ex, there can be a lot of waves coming from it, a lot of you know, gamma waves coming from the, uh, from the particles. But primarily the particles settle down as debris out of a cloud, they fall out, and then they pose ongoing risk. Uh, Different particles remain dangerous for different periods of time. Some remain dangerous for weeks. Some remain dangerous for a million years. And if a particle deposits and a particle remains dangerous and energetic for a period of time, it presents an ongoing risk to people. And the main way that people are harmed by these particles is by getting them inside their body, by inhaling them or swallowing them. This is what happened where the black rain fell. This is, it's taken us till just recently to acknowledge that the people where the black rain fell were affected by radiation. And it's primarily that they internalized particles.
1: Black rain refers, of course, to the rain that drops after the after the bomb explode. A couple of uh, after after some time, uh, there was rain that was falling. It was mixed with dust and debris, and it was called a black rain. It was full radiation.
0: Right, that's where the where the mushroom cloud here in Hiroshima drifted to the northwest. You know, it was black because of all the soot from the fires of the city burning. Um, but rain also tends to strip particles out of the cloud and bring it down in higher amounts. And so out to about 20, 30 kilometers or more, uh, a lot of radioactive fallout came down and people who were in these areas were completely unaffected by the detonation of the weapon. They did not experience the blast, the heat or the gamma waves of the burst, but they were now living in places that were, that were full of dangerous particles. Um, and so, yeah. And- yeah.
1: And those people just now, I mean, I don't know if our listeners would know, but they just now won a court case that acknowledged them as being a Bhakshar, right? And, exactly. Over 70 years later. Yeah. And now maybe you can use this case and other cases to talk a little bit more about the LSS about uh, and the problematics of it. I mean, why don't those people are acknowledged as a,
0: a Absolutely. And it is really because of things like the LSS, which is the lifespan study, the U.S., uh, the US after the, after, uh, during the occupation, after uh, the nuclear attacks. The U.S. decided, first of all, up until that time, there were only a few hundred people who had been exposed to enough radiation to cause serious health problems that were understood in that way. And so our understanding of the impacts on human health from radiation were limited to a very small number of cases. Suddenly, you have hundreds of thousands of people exposed to radiation. So this was understood as a tremendous research opportunity to look and track the health of this community in order to understand what are the health effects of huge statistically of large numbers of people if, if they're exposed to radiation.
1: Yeah. And, and why is it this particular study is diff, what makes it different and in a way inadequate to, to learn
0: about. Okay. It seems like the black rain. Well, This study, which began in 1950, and it's built on two points, which is that you have to understand the radiation dosage exposure of of each person in the study, and then you track their health for the rest of their lives. So tracking their health is fairly easy. You know, if they're participating in the study, you can monitor what diseases they develop, you can monitor at what age they die, and so you can build that piece of the database easily. The other piece, which is how much radiation were people exposed to, has to be done through dose reconstruction, because we really don't have a measurement of what happened on August 6th and on August 9th. Um, but we do have pretty good knowledge of the burst of the amount of radiation in the burst of the weapon. Uh, and so we reconstruct that their dosage. Now, one of the problems with that is that we're doing we're building a statistical model with memory, with memory and interviews. So we're using non-statistical pieces to build a statistical model, but still it's generally seen as being very, very robust at predicting health outcomes from exposures to radiation. But a decision was made at the very beginning not to consider internalized radiation, exposure to fallout. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One was that there was such a large cohort of people exposed to huge amounts of radiation that even if they had internalized some radiation, it was seen that the the burst of external radiation was really where health problems were going to develop. So it was left out. The other reason, which makes a lot of sense, is that it was impossible to tell who had internalized a particle and who had not internalized a particle. So it wasn't science they could do. So what they could do was study the external exposures. That was something that they could be certain of. And so they built a database that is very useful at predicting health outcomes to people who are exposed to a large burst of external radiation. But. What happened in the... So part of the reason this was done was there was an imagination in 1946 in the late 40s that in the future, wars were going to involve the use of nuclear weapons. But that's not what happened in the Cold War. In the Cold War, we did not have direct nuclear war. What we had instead was millions of people who found themselves in a similar position to the people where the black rain was. So it's taken us 70 years to acknowledge the harm done to the people where the black rain was. The millions of global hibakusha, the people downwind from nuclear test sites, the people downwind from Chernobyl, downwind from Fukushima, the people who live near uranium mines, their exposures are primarily from internalizing particles. So the main health model that we have to correlate Radiation exposure with medical, with, with harm, medical harm has nothing to do with the actual method of exposure that almost all of the people exposed to radiation since 1945 have experienced. Now... So the model works for what it's good for, but the problem in the problem historically, and the problem for the global Hibaksha, is that since there is no model that gives us health predictions from exposures to fallout and internalizing fallout particles, we use the lifespan study to assess risk. So, this is how you get people that go up to Fukushima after the explosions and the fallout clouds deposited particles there saying there will be no health effects. Because what they're saying is, according to the lifespan study, the external levels of radiation are not high enough to correlate to widespread health effects. But that's not where their risk comes from. Their risk comes from they are now living in in an ecosystem that is full of radioactive particles. And the Lifespan Study tells us nothing about their risk, but in test site communities, in nuclear accident communities, over and over and over, the health concerns of those exposed to radiation are dismissed because of the statistical uh, projections of the Lifespan Study. So it's a good, it's good for what it is, but it's used badly.
1: Yeah. And that's actually, you, you point out here the two things that I want to talk about next and, and the two, and the two, three next, the two, three chapters that comes afterwards, actually point out to those two, two things you mentioned now, uh, the ecosystem you where know, the particles are filled, the ecosystem is one thing. And then the management of the perception of risk, right? It was done in Fukushima and many other places, so, I want to start with the ecosystem. And in chapter three, uh, chapter two and chapter three, you talk a lot about ecosystem with irradiation and particle travel through bodies and places. Um, and in chapter three, you bring this uh, pretty compelling example of of the reindeer uh, that are uh, radiated by the Chernobyl disaster and the impact of the irradiation of the reindeer on the semi communities. And you show. Um, I mean, that's a chapter I would, I would love to teach. You show how, what radiation does to people and communities, because it doesn't just stop with the physical harm, right? I mean, maybe you can elaborate a little bit more about the circles of harm, or, I mean, you use a lot of concentric circles. Uh, maybe it, it's actually, I think it's a, a fitting metaphor to the circles of harm around radiation, because not, it doesn't end with the bodies, right?
0: Absolutely. And originally when Mick and I began the global Hibakusha project, we looked at it as something that was inquiring about non-epidemiological impacts of radiation. In other words, when people are someplace where radiation, where fallout comes down, if they're considered at all, they're only considered medically. Um, but so for example, this is how you can say how many people died in Chernobyl and you could act like that's the extent of who was affected by Chernobyl. The same question of Fukushima. Uh, people in 20 years will say how many people were affected by Fukushima. They'll count cancers. They'll say this many people were affected. But we all know that hundreds of thousands of people had their lives completely disrupted. Um, so the Sami community in Scandinavia is a, is a really easy way to understand the complexity and the interdependent uh, nature of these So this is the Sami community is an indigenous community in northern Scandinavia. Uh, They live in Sweden, in Norway, in Finland, in Russia. Uh, And they uh, they'd been living there before the communities that settled Scandinavian countries moved into the area. Um, And so their communities are built around reindeer herding. Uh, They uh, so. Their communities maintain reindeer herds. They migrate with the reindeer herds, and they uh, they make clothing. They make uh, all kinds of material. They use the entire reindeer uh, that uh, you know, the entire body of the reindeer. Um, so these are communities living their own lives in their own community and their own ecosystem, really not thinking about Chernobyl, but the Chernobyl cloud deposited a tremendous amount of fallout in this section of Scandinavia. As a matter of fact, we first found out about Chernobyl in the West because it was a Swedish nuclear power plant whose radiation detectors picked up the radiation from Chernobyl. That was our first. So it was in Sweden that we first learned about Chernobyl first became aware of it. Now a huge amount of fallout fell in these areas and it, the physical effects of it are, you know, once fallout comes down, fallout is chemicals and chemicals, just like any, any chemical, are integrated into an ecosystem. They're embedded in the ecosystem and they migrate through the ecosystem. So in this case, the reindeer, because they live far north where there's not a lot of foliage, the primary food source of the reindeer is a plant called lichen, Uh, And lichen grows on rocks. It doesn't grow in soil. And therefore, it absorbs its nutrients from the air. It doesn't absorb its nutrients from the soil. So it is a classic bioaccumulator of radiation. It accumulates radiation and concentrates radiation. And so the reindeer are beginning to eat really densely radioactive food. And so the reindeer themselves begin to become very, very radioactive. And within a year or two, you're beginning to have health impacts in the community, which is primarily subsisting off reindeer meat as a primary protein. Um, And so this ends up rippling through the community in all kinds of ways. The first way, obviously, is sickness. Um, But people there, you know, there was there was fairly active public health measures in, in these Scandinavian countries. And so there's an awareness of this going on. And so experts come in and begin to tell the community how they need to change their social structure, how they need to change the way that they're living in order to minimize the health effects. Um, and so you have people who now have these experts coming in and telling them they have to disrupt their traditional lifestyles. They have to disrupt their food, their food chain of how they produce, how they provide sustenance to their community and the economics of their community. Um, and, and so the Sami community now it's been well over 30 years. They've adapted in a variety of ways. First of all, every single reindeer that is slaughtered is now individually measured to see if the meat is edible or not. You have some, you have Anthropologists who've done really important work in this area, and and there, and one person who was being interviewed talked about how in their freezer they maintain three grades of reindeer meat: local meat, which the elders eat; uh, meat from nearby communities that is less radioactive, which the adults eat; and reindeer meat that they buy from completely outside of the region that they feed the children. Um, and now you have young people in the community not really interested in in in. Maintaining this culture because it looks like this is a culture that is dying because it cannot sustain itself. The, the main problem for the reindeer and and for their health is cesium 137. So this is going to remain it particularly dangerous for 300 years. So. It's breaking down the economic infrastructure. It's breaking down the social relationship of people. It's breaking down the the dietary habits of people. And there's all kinds of community impacts rippling outward. It's, it's complicating the relationship of the Sami and the outside community uh, because of experts coming in and telling you to change your life in this way and that way, and then they leave and you're simply... You know, facing you know what, how, what chance do you have, or in what way can you maintain your culture? Um, so this is just one community. Uh, the fallout from Chernobyl, as for example, fell all over Europe. So we find radioactive food from Chernobyl every year in multiple parts of Europe, uh, and th- this is one of the things Kate Brown writes about.
1: Yeah, and I note, and you note, while the book that this is semi, um, I mean, it's our relatively privileged, I mean I, I say it very hesitantly uh if but if you look at if you look at communities like marshallese uh, or um, or communities in algeria where the french detonated um, had nuclear tests um fiji uh, all over the world in kazakhstan in xinjiang in the chinese test all those people don't have the resources that scandinavian communities have even though semi i know are not uh, um, again, I wouldn't say they're fortunate or anything like this, but th- this location, right that's something that they didn't move, they didn't experience uh, relatively. Uh, There's something you see in Marshall Islands, in Fukushima and many other places, right? Like the fact the community yeah. is completely erased, right?
0: Yeah, forced displacement is a common experience in radiation affected communities, and you know the one of the one of the most classic examples is the Marshall Islands, where, uh, of course, the people from Bikini were removed. They were not exposed to radiation, but they lost their property. They lost their homes. They were displaced because it was their atoll was chosen as the first nuclear test site um, first post-war nuclear test site. Uh, but you have the Bravo test, which is the test of the largest U S test of a hydrogen bomb in 1954, which completely irradiated multiple atolls in the Northern Marshall islands and the people there. So for example, and the people in Rongelap, this is 150 kilometers from where the weapon was detonated. It was later estimated that their exposure, le- their external exposure level was equal to somebody that was 2.3 kilometers from ground zero in Nagasaki. That's 150 kilometers away. This is the size of hydrogen bombs. Well, they were left in this uh, level of radiation for two days before the United States evacuated all of the people from these atolls. And they were told this was temporary. But uh, of course, they in these place, there's still really high levels of radiation on Rangelap today and the other atolls that were evacuated after the Bravo test. So you have the people in these places who have lost all of their property, who have lost Uh, the ability to maintain the graves of their ancestors, who now live as outsiders in other people's communities? I mean, they are Marshallese, but in a in a in a very spread out community like the Marshall Islands, which is just a, a you know a very tiny amount of land spread over a vast section of ocean, you know, people know who is from what atoll and who's a, and who is a member of the local community and who is not a member of the local community. Uh, so they uh, have, they have been exposed to radiation. Uh, in this case, you have I think it was 282 people, roughly. I forget the exact number, that were evacuated from these atolls, and U.S. assessments later were that 170 excess cancers were produced by these exposures. So you have a community that's really seriously impacted by their exposure to radiation and also experience absolute displacement from all of their possessions and their land. Um, So there's... There's multiple ways in different communities that uh, that this his, that this legacy impacts people. One, of course, is disease, but forced displacement is another one. There's a lot of people who cannot live in their traditional lands because they were made incredibly radioactive. And then in other cases, you have people who live in incredibly radioactive places who are just abandoned to raise future generations there. And a great example of this is downwind of the the Soviet test site in Kazakhstan. Uh, There's a lot of villages that are 30, 40 kilometers away from this test site, which had almost 500 nuclear tests. And there, people have not been forcibly displaced, but there's incredibly high levels of radioactive fallout that's integrated into the ecosystem there and so you see more uh, health impact in third and fourth generations of people there because they're still living in a very densely radioactive environment and so they these are people who are producing most of their own food in their own gardens and raising their own animals and so the uh the this the cycle of uh these particles moving into the soil from soil to plant to animal to person to soil to animal to plant just continues and continues so there's a a range of different effects that people have and forced displacement and loss of possessions is one of them and when that happens there's other things that come along with it i mean dislocation from ancestral graves can be really a devastating thing for communities
1: yeah and of course a lot of it um is not acknowledged by the authorities that conducted the test. I uh, think about the way Fukushima compensation has been something has been dragged on for years. And again, Fukushima, and again, I'm hesitant to say, it, but those people, victims in first world countries, are relatively privileged uh, in relation, uh, if you think about those other communities in Kazakhstan and Marshall Islands, other places. But in all those places, you know, all those victims, never mind uh, their position vis a each other, I mean, they all share the same risks, and they also sh- all share the same lack of acknowledgement, I would say. Would you agree? I mean, because, like, and, and it starts right from the start. I mean, chapter four, clogging, clogging contamination, you, you talk about how this is not, it's not negligence, right? It's something that it's part of, it's not a bug, it's a feature of the system, right? The, the, the lack of acknowledgement, uh, the masking of radiation impact, I was really struck by, the time, by Chapter 4 We you talk about William Lawrence. I mean, it starts right from the start,
0: right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, William Lawrence, who was a New York Times reporter who also worked as a paid employee of the Manhattan Project. Um, and so he wrote press releases before the Trinity test, several different press releases in case they had to evacuate people uh, or in case people just noticed a giant explosion. He was on the plane during the Nagasaki um, during the Nagasaki attack. Uh, and he so he was essentially a public relations professional for the Manhattan Project, who also happened to be the science writer at The New York Times. And so uh, he was able to shape a lot of the narrative of how people thought about radiation. So, for example, when William Burchett's article, uh, Atomic Plague was published in the fall of 1945, saying that a lot of people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were becoming sick from radiation and that people who had, you know, he, he was the first Western reporter to make it to these cities, Um, and uh, that people who had been healthy uh, the week after the nuclear attacks were falling sick with a mysterious illness. because of that, William Lawrence, well, actually um, Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, decided that they need to counter these stories about radiation harming people, and so they staged a visit to the Trinity site, and they went out there and basically said, "Oh, it's perfectly safe out here. Nobody, there's no harm at all." And so William Lawrence wrote this article in the New York Times saying, "You know, oh, it's just propaganda that there's anybody being harmed from radiation in Hiroshima and Nagasaki," and so he was very much out. Front, you know advancing the narrative at this early time of the Manhattan Project uh, claiming uh, the military part of the Manhattan Project claiming that you know all of the harm done was done by the blast and the and the heat of the weapon and really the radiation effects were negligible
1: but they knew and, right and from
0: the start right they knew they before knew the, the Trinity, start right? they knew but they knew yeah. before Trinity uh yeah. there's there's uh we have all kinds of materials from different countries talking about the use uh, essentially of fallout as a weapon uh in the early 1940s the United States in 1943 was talking about if there was a way that you could use uranium particles and you could drop them in dust and create uh, uh and and have an enemy uh, enemy troops inhale them you could kill those enemy troops with the uranium dust so there was the Talk of there was talk of radiological warfare during World War II. Uh, And for example, it was serious enough that the Allied command on D Day, when the Allied troops Uh, came ashore in Normandy, there were people among them, it was called Operation Peppermint, there were people among them carrying Geiger counters because it was thought that the Germans were well aware of this too and they may have salted the beaches with uranium in order to try to repel an invasion. So there were people on D-Day, 1944, carrying Geiger counters in anticipation of radiological warfare, so this was this was well known. And at the Trinity test, the Manhattan Project had multiple radiation assessment crews downwind to track the fallout cloud to see what the levels were in different town, in different nearby towns and communities to see if they had to be evacuated. So, uh, fallout was absolutely the the harm uh, that fallout could do. The the was was known well before the Trinity test. Yeah,
1: and and. They did very elaborate tests to see how it goes through the ecosystem. I want to talk about this insane project of what was Green Run. I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, a Green Run. It's a well, the Green
0: the Green Run is is, (laughs) yeah, yeah. The the Green Run is something that happened at Hanford, Washington, uh, in nineteen forty nine. Hanford, Washington, is where the United States produced most of its plutonium, uh, including the plutonium used in the Nagasaki weapon and the Trinity weapon. Uh, and, you know, so that's where the world's first really fully industrial nuclear reactors were run, because that's how you produce plutonium as you operate nuclear reactors. Uh, that's what nuclear reactors were invented for, was to produce plutonium. And so when you take nuclear fuel rods, you know, this is, these are fuel rods that are, that are burned, in, you know, that are, that are used inside a nuclear reactor. Uh, when you burn them for some period of time, you're converting some of the uranium in the fuel rod into plutonium and then you cool down the rod and you then uh, extract the plutonium through a chemical separation process. And it's, if you, if you wait a hundred days, then it's much safer to process the spent fuel because a lot of the short-lived radionuclides will die out in 100 days. They Some of the radionuclides will reduce really quickly. So you're dealing with less toxicity and less radioactivity if you wait 100 days to chemically separate the plutonium. So this is what the U.S. was doing in 1949 when it was producing its plutonium for nuclear weapons. Well, in 1949, the Soviet Union developed nuclear weapons too. Uh, and so... United States was suddenly transfixed by this threat of Soviet nuclear weapons, and they wanted to know what was their plutonium production capacity. So they decided to do this experiment. Uh, essentially, what they decided was that the Soviets were not waiting a hundred days to process their fuel rods; they were processing them while they were hot, while they which they called green, while they were before they had cooled down. So they were doing green processing of plutonium, and so. Th- the U.S. decided that what they wanted to do was they wanted to do an experiment at Hanford where they processed some of the fuel rods green. They wanted to do a green run. And then what they would do is they would fly planes overhead and they would measure the chemical... Uh, the chemical output from the plant itself so that by understanding what the, what was in the air after a green run of plutonium separation they could then fly u-2s over the soviet union gather particles from the air and they could gauge what the plutonium production capabilities of the soviet union were so they did this experiment in the fall of 1949 at hanford washington where they processed the fuel green and it was just a disaster. Uh, it basically covered almost all of eastern Washington and in eastern Oregon and parts of northern Idaho with iodine 137, um, which is radioiodine. And so it was, a, it was a disaster and it really didn't give them any particularly useful information. But as crazy as it was, one of the main things I would point out is that during the Manhattan Project, when Hanford began, all of their processing of fuel, into all of their processing uh, was green. They, just like the Soviet Union at the beginning, were not waiting 100 days. The U.S. only began to wait 100 days after the war when they felt like they were the only ones with nuclear weapons who had time to do this, to do it the safe way. But when they were trying to produce the weapon for Nagasaki, when they were trying to produce weapons to be used in Japan, they were doing exactly what the Soviets were doing, which was every run was a green run. For 1945
1: yeah. and 1946, so they knew it was going to be release radiation all over the place, right?
0: Absolutely. It this a, yeah. and in 1946, at the the Bikini tests in the Marshall Islands, the first two post post war nuclear tests, uh, the second one was an absolute radiological disaster, and the and one there's there's a couple of outcomes one was that there was an ongoing study of the the migration of radionuclides through the ecosystem at bikini atoll the university of washington department of fisheries and the aec were conducting studies at bikini atoll uh, the they even there's a noise? Partner the sunshine project or no, this is this is just completely separate. Uh okay. there's there's a film you can see on YouTube called Bikini Radio Biological Laboratory, which is sort of an upbeat, you know, cold early Cold War film about we can learn about radiation by tracking its movement through the ecosystem um at Bikini Atoll. But there was also the top secret report that came out of Operation Crossroads, which was the name of those two tests in 1946. And there was so much fallout. Uh, and in the second test in the Baker test that in this report they say outright that there is no way to imagine the terror you can inflict on a population if you were to have a burst of radioactive fallout engulf a city that, People would panic and run, and among those who left would be some destined to die because of their exposures, and that happening would terrify the people who didn't die, and it was an absolute understanding of the weaponization of radioactive fallout in 1947 in official assessments of those tests.
1: Yeah, I think I, I used this quote in, in my last book uh, about uh, uh, about the the psychologization of, of radiation and the use of radiation as a psychological weapon. They were very aware of radiation uh, impact uh, and and the weaponization of it was something they did on, on purpose. Um, I want to stay with the lab rhetoric here in Bikini because it's this quote you bring, and, and and I'm moving here to Chapter 5, uh, by Meryl Eisen. Uh, Heisenbad is he director of the AEC's health and safety laboratory. He talks about Bikini, I think, here. And it tells a lot about the power relationship. And there's something that I come back here again, again, both power relationship and hierarchies between victims, but also between the nuclear powers and their own citizens or the non citizens, even when it's like the power relationship it's really stark. And in here, it really comes out. Um, and I'll read it to you now. It's on page 154. Well, it's true that these people do not live. I would say the way Westerners do, civilized people. It is nevertheless uh, Westerners uh, do civilized people. I mean, Westerners. It is nevertheless also true that these people are more like us than mice. And he talks about uh, Bikini Atoll here, right? About Marshallese.
0: Yeah, and it, uh, actually, what he's re- what what he's really talking about is the those exposed from the Bravo test too. Yeah. And so uh, to uh, yeah. Treat
1: people is a little bit
0: better than mice. I mean,
1: is this extreme? Um, this quote is, it, is he being here, just awfully horribly racist, or is, what's going on? He, here?
0: he's he's being he's being uh, of course dismissive of the dignity and integrity of other human beings, um, but he's also being from his point of view pragmatic. Uh, in in other words, the U.S. was conducting a lot of tests with. Uh, mice exposing them to radiation, feeding them radioactive food so that particles would be inside their body. And partly what he was saying was, you know, uh, the you know, this will give us much more useful results than mice. He wasn't just saying mice out of nowhere. He was saying as experimental subjects, the data we are able to harvest from studying the exposed bikinians and, or the ex- exposed Marshallese is much more medically useful to us than uh, the experiments we're currently doing on dogs and mice and and uh, pigs and things like that. And so that that's from his point of view, he could say that's practically a true point is that this is more useful information. Uh, but the first half of that sentence that they're, they're, they're not like us, you know, that in a sense, the fact that we're civilized and that these people, by contrast, he's apparently calling not civilized. uh, And and this is just lifestyle, really. Um, You you know, that that, uh, they're not exactly like us. Now, how, as somebody in charge of radiobiological assessment, you could believe that two human beings are not close enough that the health effects of studying one are really the same as the health effects of studying the other because we're civilized and they're not civilized. I mean, that's just biologically ridiculous. Um, so he is showing his uh, his privilege. He is showing his uh, his racism. He is showing his and his absolute disregard for human for the lives of human beings. Uh, that these are not people that need to be helped. These are people that need to be studied. Uh, and this is an experience that people exposed to radiation in many of these communities experience. This is a a really common feature that people endure. Is that they experience biological subjectivity? They become when they're exposed to radiation. Now they become interesting for the data that can be harvested from them. We saw this at the ABCC. This is really a part of the legacy in Hiroshima and part of the resentment here in the community at first uh, about the ABCC and the fact that it was not providing care, but it was simply studying people. Uh, you know, very much as as though they were just subjects and not human beings who needed assistance. Uh, and th- this happens everywhere. Just as an example, in 1950, uh, in 1956, there was a uh, th- there was a, U- a U.S. plane that well, I think it was 56. I might be getting my year on. I'm sorry. Anyways, there was a U.S. bomber. That was being refueled midair and crashed and and exploded midair, both the the refueling plane and the U.S. bomber exploded midair over a town in southern Spain called Palomares, Spain, and four hydrogen bombs fell to the community and uh, they did not explode because they were not armed but they did crack open and plutonium spread all over these communities and it's still contaminated. The U S is still not cleaned up. Uh, I've, I've been there and there's, there's basically, there's a wire fence separating this plutonium laden field from schools and houses. And it's a windy place. Um, but the people there, one of the things that they said when we were interviewing them was, oh, I get a free a free trip to Madrid every year because I have to go take a medical test in Madrid every year. So so there's a way in which it's like, oh, look, you get a benefit because of this thing that happened there. But it's because they're medical subjects now, because we just want to track their health and we want to see how effect- how the plutonium is affecting the health of the community members. Uh, but they're not told that. Uh and so this is a really common experience is that when people are exposed to radiation, they are valued for the data that can be harvested from them rather than they are treated as though people who have been harmed by deliberate actions that were taken knowingly p- exposing them to risk.
1: Yeah. And, and it's not just them. Right. Um, and, and I want to go back now, like, i want to go forward now to talk about, um, in chapter 6 and 7 we talk about the cold war being a limited nuclear war um uh, uh, all this that was done to the victims uh of nuclear tests nuclear accidents you call it a limited nuclear war uh, in chapter 6 and in chapter 7 a slow motion nuclear war uh, and those were two chapters last chapters were you know it's it's not a happy book right <laughs> but but they were really the, the hardest hardest for me to read i mean it, it's 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 it reads very well, but it, the topic is pretty dark. Because right? um, those chapters show the way nuclear powers are basically conducting a war against those communities. But also, and I think that's very important, and this is what I took from the book. it's what stay with me is about the war on future generations. That what we're doing is the, uh, is really leaving our descendants a poisoned legacy. Right? This is you know, this is something that, uh, you know, people like Rob Knox, uh, Rob Nixon, environmentalism, uh, uh, can call slow violence, I mean, the same way that like in the, the information is slow violence. Um, I wonder if you can elaborate on it. And also, if we talk about environmentalism, I mean, there's the issue of nuclear power versus global warming. And I want to end on this. I mean, Why does nuclear power would not save us from ourselves, would not save us from global warming? So maybe we can talk about those two last chapters and and, and the legacy issue uh, in regards to environmentalism in the last five or six minutes we have left.
0: Sure, sure. First, I'll, I'll mention that part of the reason that I call the Cold War a limited nuclear war is that the effects of fallout, you know, to to kill people at a distance by irradiating, by covering their ecosystem with particles that are that are going to make them sick. This was strategized into how to fight a nuclear war. Um, so, when you have a weapon effect that you know will travel thousands of kilometers and will create harm to people, then when you do detonate these weapons and the fallout clouds travel thousands of kilometers and create harm you are inflicting violence on people and so it's not a test it, th- this is this is you know you you may be keeping the blast and the heat and the burst of gamma radiation on the test site but the fallout which is a key part of the military use of the weapon the fallout is doing what it's designed to do which is travel a distance and harm people at a distance and so that's attacking them Uh, that is a limited nuclear war. And it's not by one country against another country. Uh, It's by all of the nuclear weapon states against essentially what I've called nuclear subalterns under their control, people who cannot stop them from doing this, people who are not politically powerful enough to prevent it from happening. Um, But in terms of the legacy of nuclear power and the and the and its relationship with let's just say climate change uh, and global warming. Um, uh, first of all, what I would say is that spent nuclear fuel. Uh, these are those fuel rods that we use for getting plutonium. Uh, and in nuclear power plants, we don't separate the plutonium, so their fuel rods still have the plutonium in them. Uh, these are going to be dangerous for well over a hundred thousand years. So we know that we need to somehow put them into quote unquote safe storage in order to protect future generations. Um, so one of the things that I mention is that this is the most substantive and enduring legacy of human civilization. A hundred thousand years ago, humans did not live off the African continent. A hundred thousand years from now, All of these cities will be gone. All of these languages will be forgotten. Uh, All of our gods will be dead. All of our myths won't exist anymore. But this waste, this spent nuclear fuel, will be there intact in the world of the people living then. This is the most substantive thing. This is how they will know us. They will not know us by our history. They will know us as the people who made that stuff. Um, And so... and we we believe that we can store it safely by putting it deep underground in deep geological repositories, half a kilometer underground. Um, but n- at no point in history have have we really been able to do something and have it go exactly as we planned. So the idea that we're going to just do this and it's just going to work because we've done a lot of studies, I, I you know we've, we're doing great science around how, and we have to do this the best way possible. It's really a burden on us to do that, but we also have to realize that you know just like Nuclear power plants were not designed to have meltdowns. Sometimes they do. Things go, everything humans do, you know, they work a little bit and they don't work a little bit. And that is almost certain to be true with these repositories. So we really have to face the fact that we're very likely exposing people in the future to our waste. Now, this spent fuel, whether it was from weapons that gave us security, you know, or generating electricity. They gave, they are used for three years, these spent fuel rods. So there's three years of benefit from them and then thousands of generations of risk. Um, So this is our burden on the future, on future generations is that we're filling their world at this point with hundreds of thousands of metric tons, just of the spent fuel and not the other waste. Uh, And so that's insane. That's an insane way to treat your descendants. It's really, really being bad ancestors. Uh, and so I argue that one of the first things we can do in order to protect future generations, in order to protect our descendants is to stop making more of it. It's a ridiculous thing for us to be doing to our descendants, filling their world with the most toxic material that we have created. That is only a danger to them. Um, and, and when it comes to something like, uh, global warming and nuclear power as an alternative, first of all, that's ridiculous. At this point, it's taking, you know, 10 years and sometimes 20 or 30 years to build nuclear power plants. Uh, you know, they're really not a quick way to get something done. Um, and it, it, the, these underground storage sites, so there's only one of them. There's no, no nuclear fuel has been put underground yet, but the site that is likely to do it first is the Onkalo site in Finland. Finland has four nuclear power plants, They just now are bringing online a fifth nuclear power plant. It took 20 years to build, and it was billions of dollars over cost. Um, And their underground storage site to store the waste just from five nuclear power plants was for over a decade among the 10 largest construction projects in Europe. So that's got a bit of a carbon footprint. Now we're talking about, in the rest of the world, hundreds of nuclear power plants the, to build these underground storage sites, we, we tend to call nuclear power a low-carbon uh, energy source because during the period that the plant is operating, its carbon output is very limited. It's much better than coal. Um, but uranium mining has a very good carbon footprint. Uh, building these underground storage sites also has a carbon footprint. Uh We have no idea the leaks that will happen in the future from these sites and and what kind of remediation will have to be done for that. So the idea of taking a kind of energy source that is labor that is uh, capital intensive it's it's that it hasn't been able to draw investors because it's not making money for people. Uh, it takes a long time to build the risks when things go wrong. I mean you can look at Fukushima and you could say that whatever uh, whatever savings uh, whatever value came from nuclear power in Japan, All of the public funding to compensate and remediate the Fukushima site, you know, just use that up by something going wrong in a day. Uh, And so, this is really not a way to solve a problem. This is this is typical of a certain mindset which believes that we have made this huge technological mess and so the key is for us to be clever and make another technological mess. We did our technological mess was global warming. You know, we've done this industrial thing, we've made this global warming, so now we just need to come up with an even cooler technological way to fix that when really what we need to do is to shift our behavior rather than come up with something more clever that's going to fix it. So there's no way we're going to build enough nuclear power plants quick enough, safely, to be able to alter the uh, our and to maintain the current use of energy, uh, and so if if we're going to have a society in five hundred years from now, it's going to be because of renewable sources of energy. That's really the only way that it that we're going to have a sustainable long term civilization. And so anything that keeps us from getting there complicates the situation. And if it also puts thousands of generations at risk, it's really hard to call it smart.
1: Yeah, and I would just add, we just saw in Ukraine. Uh, Kate Brown just had a really great uh, article uh, about about this, about how no one thought is going to be a war fought over over uh, in a nuclear state like Ukraine. I mean, this is how short-sighted we were. I mean, this, this thing happened 30, 40 years ago, right? And what will happen to all those places in a future geopolitical arrangement when there is war around
0: those sites, which is something we humans tend to do all the time, right? But this is a so, perfect way of seeing that when you design a technology and you believe that you have figured out all of the safety systems you need, and you've which is the way we're looking at burying the waste underground... Oh, there's that thing you just didn't even think about, which is there could be wars around these power plants. So you know this is what we are. We're human beings. We don't really see everything that's possible. So imagining how this these underground sites are going to behave for a hundred thousand years that it's madness to believe that we can really do that. We can do we can probably predict some things fairly well, but we're talking about a hundred thousand years ago or 100,000 years from now, it, it's ridiculous to believe that we can exert technological control and anticipation for a period of time like that.
1: And on this bright note, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to end, uh, the actually, uh, the interview with asking you what, what's next. I mean, that, that's, that's been a very long project work than, uh, you worked on, you and Mick, for uh 20 years or so? What's no, it? no,
0: 12 years. 12 years? 12, okay. 12 years, yeah. Um, well,
1: still long. <laughs> uh, what's, <laughs>
0: next? what's next for you? Well, uh, I'm working on a project now. It's a little less ambitious, but it's very much in, in line with, with this last work, and that is about uh, American hibaksha. Um, and I, and what I want to do is I want to really, I really want to change the way Americans understand their relationship with nuclear technologies, because Americans tend to think of themselves as the people who used nuclear weapons, not as the people who suffered from nuclear weapons and as the people who invented nuclear reactors, not as people who are suffering from nuclear reactors. And America, you know, the Hanford, Washington site is really one of the most One of the most toxic sites on Earth because of all of the horrible practices that were done during the production of the plutonium at Hanford, Washington. The Nevada test site saw uh, over 900 nuclear weapon tests. There was a study that came out last year that found cesium 137 from Nevada test site tests. So these are tests from the 1950s, atmospheric tests from the 1950s or the early 1960s. It found cesium-137 in honey at 40 or 50 different locations on the east coast of the United States. This is showing that the fallout from the Nevada test site is cycling through the ecosystem of the U.S. and is showing up in food in the U.S. And of course it is. Um, so partly what I want to do is look at the legacy at the United States, at the production legacy, at the testing legacy, you know, people recently became aware of the meltdown that happened at the Santa Susana research reactor in Los Angeles. So this is a history that's largely been invisible for Americans. And I want Americans to learn to understand how radiologically impacted their own country is from the choices we've made in the past.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm really looking forward f- uh, for it. I always ask my students, what is the country that where most nuclear bombs were dropped on? And they always say Japan. But I said, no, it's your, <laughs> it's, it's the US. Uh, and it's, it's, really, it's, it's really something I, can, I look forward to uh, to read and teach and use. Um, thank you very much, both. Thank you for uh, giving the time. Thank you for this really lovely conversation. And uh, yeah, I hope to see you back again with the
0: next book. Absolutely. Thank you, Ron. It's been great to talk to you.